Hello and welcome to this University of Brighton podcast. As part of UK Disability History Month, we thought we would speak to three of our students about experiencing university life with a disability or learning difficulty. The three students will introduce themselves in the podcast and the three separate interviews will follow. There is more information about disability support at the university in the link in the podcast description. Enjoy the podcast. My name's Naomi Baker and I'm a second year biomedical sciences student. I have a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which for me affects my joints, meaning they dislocate very easily and has also led to problems with my digestive system and my bladder. I also have Crohn's disease and I'm on the autistic spectrum. Okay. Um, Let's start from the start, I suppose, then. Uh, When it comes to selecting a university to study at, uh, how readily available is information about support for prospective students with disabilities? I mean, is it easy to find that kind of information on university websites, for instance? I mean, you can speak as specifically or generally as you'd like on this one, really. I mean, when I was applying to university, I emailed around a few universities and asked sort of what adaptations they'd be able to put in place to support me, what support there was. Um, And Brighton was actually the only one that got back with specific support. Lots of the others just sent back a generic email telling me when open days were. Um, So I came and met a member of the disability team at Brighton and had a look around with them. Okay. So did that that kind of sway your decision then, do you think, or was there more to it than that? um, Part of what swayed my decision was if the course was accredited. That was quite important for me. But I also needed to know that the university would be able to support my access needs so I could get around the campus, access the course and participate in all the lab sessions okay um you kind of touched on it there already a little bit but and it's quite a broad question um but what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing people with disabilities in higher education and and at university particularly navigating a campus and things like that that you just mentioned i think when it comes to navigating the campus one of the biggest challenges i find is things like getting through doorways that are too narrow um because i'm a wheelchair user Um, Also when people park in front of drop curbs, so you then can't get off the pavement to go wherever you're going. Mm. Um, And when lifts break down, that's quite a big one for me. Mm. Uh, If you were to kind of give one or a few tips to students and staff in order to help them support disabled students as much as possible, what do you think they would be? I think the main thing is it's important to feel able to ask someone if you're not sure how you can help them or if they need help. Um, I've had experiences in the past where people have assumed I've needed help and actually that's made it a lot more difficult to do something. Um, So it's just finding out about that person and what help they want. Hmm. Somebody else mentioned that idea that uh, sometimes people ask or assume that you want help when when you don't that must be slightly irritating it is i think sometimes there's an assumption that a disabled person can't do things for themselves and while i may do things in a slightly different way or a slightly different speed a lot of the time i'm just as capable as anyone else is at doing it i just do it in my own way Mm. um i think when people assume you need help it does make it a lot more difficult i've had people grab my wheelchair and try and push it Mm. Um, I've had people push my wheelchair out of the way in shops um, or people who will kind of assume that I'm not understanding what they're saying. Mm. So one of the things I've experienced quite a lot is people will slow down their voice, they'll almost act as if they don't think I'm capable of understanding what they're saying. Mm. Um, just because they've seen the wheelchair without knowing anything about me. Yeah. So would you say just generally not to assume is probably one of the best pieces of advice? Yeah, the best bit of advice I could give is don't make assumptions about the person or their condition, but also generally feel free to ask that person. Mm. Because, I mean, for me personally, I'm quite open about 
the problems I face and the health problems I have. Mm -hmm. And if you include someone in the discussion about how they might need help, it works better for everyone in the end. And why do you think people might be reluctant to ask or, or hesitant to ask in your experience, do you think? I think people are always worried about saying the wrong thing. Um, I mean, most of the time, there's not particularly a wrong thing to say. I'm not offended if someone asks, why are you using a wheelchair? Um, I'd rather have that discussion and it just be something that we've discussed and move on from. Mm. But I think it's funny because Brighton is such an accepting area in general. Um, but awareness and acceptance around disability is still an area that needs work. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, what what education, general education, would you like, I suppose, to, to increase awareness about about disabled people and disabilities? Do you think there should be more of that, whether that's in university or, or wider society? I think it's just a general awareness that is needed that, first of all, that not all disabilities are visible, even though, you know, I use a wheelchair, so mine is fairly visible. You could also have people with Crohn's disease or autism or any number of things where it's not obvious that they might face extra challenges mm. um, but I think it's also about enabling people to feel that they can ask questions I've never met someone with a disability who isn't happy to answer questions mm -hmm. and to help educate people okay and you mentioned uh, uh, the, some of the support that you'd had before you were actually a student here earlier um, what support do you access now so since I've been at university, I've had regular contact with the disability and dyslexia team. Um, I've got a autism mentor through the Disabled Students Allowance. Okay. And I see them once a week, once every two weeks. I see the SSGT for the school I'm in quite regularly. Um, and I also have contacts with the estates team to talk about sort of physical access and how that can be improved on the campus okay and what what advice would you give say to a student with a disability that was about to enroll at university would it be to get in touch with those people you just mentioned yeah it would be to get in touch with the disability and dyslexia team be open about your needs what's going to help you what's not going to help you what you're worried about um because there's lots of support out there but if you're not open with them from the start then it's much harder to access that support and is that support something that you had to go looking for or was it quite readily available when you when you came here i suppose and for me it was really readily available the disability team was the first team i had contact with and they helped me to be able to come and look around the university um and it's never been a problem accessing the support it's just about maintaining contact with them if you don't keep them updated about what's going on with you then they don't know how to help that's true okay and has anything i know you've only been here a few years but has anything changed or improved at the university to enable the kind of access that you're talking about um i mean a big one for me has been a lot of door openers like push buttons have been installed around the university okay um when we originally looked around it turned out that the doors were too heavy and pulling them caused my shoulder to dislocate right so we spent an afternoon with the estates team going around figuring out what routes i'd use a lot what routes other people used a lot and mm. where they needed to be buttons to make sure i could access everything and there's also been adaptations put into the flat that i'm in in halls okay. so that i can get in there easily um and maintain my independence as much as possible yeah, you obviously working quite closely with the estates team then. Is that something you wanted to do to help other students with disabilities as well? Or is it more the case that you needed to navigate your own way around and that's just kind of a, a good side effect of it, I suppose? I suppose it started off as I needed to be able to get around the campus, but it's moved on to sometimes just emailing them with general points about things that aren't as accessible as they could be. Okay. Um, so... Some of the shops and bars, for instance, are just not wheelchair-friendly at all. Mm. Um, or sometimes if, 
like push buttons for doors have broken, if lifts have broken down, mm -hmm. um, accessing the building, like accessing the library out of hours, how that works. Mm. Um, so I think even though originally I was focused on how I'd access the campus, it's turned into something a bit bigger than that. Okay. And is there any one thing or number of things that you would like to see change about this university, about universities in general, that would further enable that kind of access? Is there anything that you can think of at the top of your head? The main thing I find really tricky to access is the student union shop on the Morscombe campus. Okay. Um, it's very narrow, so if they're unpacking boxes or anything, it's inaccessible for a mm. wheelchair user. But it's also narrow enough that if you stop, it's very difficult for anybody else to get past. Okay. Um, and that's quite difficult. And are there any specific obstacles, I suppose, relating to your course in particular? Because um, obviously I've spoken to a few people on different courses and some of them are postgraduate students as well. Um, but presumably you're working in labs quite a lot. Is there anything particularly challenging about that or any adjustments that have been made in, in the lab? The main challenge we found in the lab sessions last year was that I couldn't see the microscopes. Right. Um, so I couldn't record test results because I couldn't see what was going on. Mm. So we've got a new microscope that connects to my iPad, which has been great because okay. it means I can see exactly what's going on. Um, and I'm not reliant on other people describing to me what's under the microscope. Mm. Is that one of a, a number of kind of technological devices you're using to, to aid your study or is that pretty much the only the only thing? I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you use in that sense. Um, in lectures I have recording software on my laptop which I use quite a lot. I've also got Dragon software on my laptop which is great for writing essays. Okay. Um, because it means I can dictate them vocally instead of having to try and type everything. Sure. Um, in labs, we've sort of adapted slightly as we've gone along, depending on the lab session. Um, so we've got a table that goes up and down. We've got the new microscope. Um, sometimes I use slightly different methods to other people when it comes to sterilising equipment. Mm -hmm. But there's been loads of support to figure that out along the way. Okay, and more generally, what do you find most rewarding about your your course? What's the kind of thing that drives you about it? Is it is it the lab work? Is it the essays? I mean, what's your favourite thing? I think I just love finding out more about the area and about how the human body works. Okay. Um, but also what happens when it goes wrong and how medicine can support that mm. to either cure the problem or make sure that the patient can still have a good quality of life. Yeah. And has that always been your kind of specialist area, I guess, through school? And has that always been a, a passion of yours? I've always enjoyed biology since primary school. Okay. Um, and I... Yeah. <laughs> what are you, do you have any um, specific aims then? I know it's kind of early to be talking about post-university life, but is there, are there any ambitions you have related to that? Um, I'd like to go and do a master's course if I can, and okay. maybe a PhD. Great. Um but at the moment, I'm just finding out what areas I enjoy the most. Sure. Um, okay. What I'm interested in. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and is there anything else that you'd like to add about anything, really, about any access issues, about studies or anything you can think of? I think, again, I'd just encourage people to be accepting and to be open to asking questions. Okay. Um, I think sometimes people see the wheelchair rather than the person who's using the wheelchair mm. and that can be quite difficult mm. i think the thing to remember is that even if someone is disabled you know they're still a person there's still a you know they've still got a whole life around them likes dislikes mm. favorite netflix series <laughs> it's you know we're the same as everyone else in that respect my name's esther ayola and i'm studying a phd in social policy and i'm in second year um, it's kind of complex, so I have quite a few conditions and I'm also um, kind of under medical scrutiny for um, more diagnoses. 
Um, my main condition is um, ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, and I also have chronic fatigue syndrome, which kind of coincides with that. Um, and to be honest, those are two conditions that shouldn't be together because one means my brain is constantly going and then the other means that I'm constantly tired. So, yeah, those are the main conditions. And when it comes to selecting a university to study at, I suppose, um, what resources did you find were kind of available readily? So, you know, can you find information on university websites, for example, about disability support or, or could there be more done in that field, do you think? I think there definitely could be more done. Um, when looking in terms of disability, I didn't think so much about disability support. I think it kind of hit me after I'd gained admission because that was when I realised, OK, I'm actually going to be going to this university and I need to actually figure out how I'm going to work through the next three years. Um, on the website, there are a few things there that kind of talk about what the university does um, in terms of supporting its students that do have disabilities. Um, but it isn't necessarily kind of clear. I think one of the problems of having ADHD is you can read something a thousand times and still not understand it because your brain is just jumping around all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so in terms of kind of actually reading what was on the website and thinking, OK, well, how does this apply to me? Um, because in my mind, I don't have a disability per se, I suppose. Um, and I'm not dyslexic. Mm. So when you see disability and dyslexia, it's kind of like, OK, does this apply to me or does it not? Yeah. So it's quite confusing, I think. What more do you think could be done at that initial stage then, do you think, to maybe offer a, a wider range of support that isn't just like reading an article on a website, I suppose? Yeah. I think it would be nice to maybe have, like, it sounds very weird, but a video maybe just from the disability and dyslexia support team. Um, obviously, you can't name every single condition, but just kind of saying, you know, if you have anything that you're concerned about, if you're not sure if it's a disability or a learning difficulty, just come and see us anyway. Um, at least then it's like, OK, you kind of feel like the door's been opened and it's up to you to kind of... Uh, visit the student support centre and ask them for support or say, OK, do you know what? I've been struggling with this. I'm not sure if it's a disability or not. Um, could you help me out with it? Yeah, that would be really helpful. OK, and moving on to study itself then. Um, it's a broad question and feel free to answer as generally or specifically as you want, I suppose. Um, but what do you think are the biggest challenges facing people with disabilities in higher education? And I suppose specifically in your case, ADHD, uh, chronic fatigue, fatigue syndrome and other disabilities or impairments that you might, you might have. What do you think um, are the biggest challenges? The biggest one for me right now, or should I say that has been happening for the last few years, is the fact that everyone wants to go paperless. It is awful. If you have ADHD or dyslexia or any kind of specific learning difficulty or chronic fatigue or eye strain, for example, having to sit at a computer for like 10 hours a day is the worst thing I could ever think of doing. Mm. Um, and it does often mean that I'm having to print things constantly so that I can use an overlay, so that I can highlight. Um, and people are always think, oh, well, you're wasting a lot of paper. And I'm thinking it's not a waste because I can't use the computer. Mm. Um, but I think that is something that I've noticed, even, you know, in working environments, that it is, it's a big pressure to not print things. But computers and learning difficulties don't really work well, I don't think. Mm. That's a major challenge. I find every day that I'm constantly, you know, having to traipse through papers on my desk or print something or reprint something if I've lost it mm. um, or misplaced it. So that's a really big challenge. Um, I think... Another big challenge is also not being able to audio record things because okay. I can sit in a meeting for an hour and leave and be like, oh, what was actually said in that meeting? And then I don't remember. Um, and it's you do feel quite stressed and anxious and sometimes get a bit kind of put pressure on yourself to actually try and remember every conversation, every name, mm -hmm. which, you know, for the average person, it might be OK. You probably catch a few things here and there, but I could literally walk out and be like, I didn't hear a word. Really? Um, and not remember anything other than even not remember things I've said right okay. which is it's a it's a big pain it's a really big pain mm -hmm. um but obviously there are ethical issues around recording people I was gonna say can you not is that not an option then you it or? is an option I think in terms of lectures um a lot of lecturers are very um supportive of that but as a PhD student I don't have lectures mm. so it's kind of like can I really audio record every single conversation um because then people aren't going to be themselves and conversations won't flow in a certain way so mm. Yeah, that's been quite tricky, um, I think. I'm still working with the student services team to kind of 
figure a way around that, I think, at the moment. Yeah. Could you say any more about that now, or is it still kind of in progress? Um, It's still in progress. Um, They've talked me through a few specific pieces of software um, that I can use in terms of kind of like, you know, transcribing meeting notes, um, strategies as well, tips on how to take notes. Because, again, note-taking is kind of... I can't listen and write at the same time. I have to just do one (laughs) so I can do it well. Um, which does mean that you, again, leave either with no notes because you've contributed so much verbally or you've got pages and pages of notes but you haven't engaged in the conversation. Mm. Um, So it's just nice to be able to speak with other people who both have specific learning difficulties and who don't about strategies that have helped them um, and just different approaches to learning, I think. Being in a place such as Brighton is good because you've got such a wide range of people from different backgrounds and I often get tips from other PhDs or supervisors and people that aren't even my supervisors, actually, mm. just staff in my school um, about ways that I can kind of make things a little bit easier for myself. OK, I was yeah. going to ask about that general support. I mean, whether yeah. it's actually put in place by the university or whether it's just people getting together to discuss solutions, like you said. Yeah. Um, have you managed to find that support here and how? Yes, I have been able to find that support, but it's more to do with the fact that my school is very supportive and everybody is very um communicative everybody's very open um i don't know if that would be the general experience of everyone in every school at the university but a lot of it is kind of informal things mm-hmm. so someone might send me an article or a, a new piece of software that they've come across from you know their child's primary school or something um and just say you know i thought this might be helpful for you maybe have a look at it did yeah. that come about quite naturally then those connections with other people in your department and the advice that they're now offering you and maybe you offering other people as well did that just kind of grow naturally yeah i think it grew organically in the sense that I kind of had a few people that I, you know, you know, I sit next to and I maybe said, oh, you know, like, oh, my brain's really just really tired today. And I could really do with, I don't know, not having to read a thousand pages and then mm. someone saying, oh, actually, someone told me that they've used the software that helps them to summarize notes. And it's like, oh, OK. Yeah. Um, so word of mouth um, and people kind of talking loosely and confidentially about certain things, like maybe speaking to someone on my behalf, but not necessarily saying that it's me. Um so kind of keeping that relationship quite close, but also being open. So I'm, I'm OK for people to kind of speak on my behalf if they know someone who might have some strategies that would be helpful um, or maybe talk about my um, the conditions that I have. I'm really happy for that to, to happen. Um, but, yeah, it's just kind of snowballed, I suppose. Yeah. I wonder in higher education in general, and obviously you've got specific reasons now because you're a PhD student it's slightly different from an undergraduate student say but yeah. for undergraduate students when you are having to take in a lot of information from lectures yeah or not should there be a more flexible range of learning experiences I suppose like so you don't have to as you mentioned kind of read for hours on end or yeah. listen to a long lecture do you think there should be more a, a bigger range I guess yeah definitely I think in terms of the resources that lecturers use um they really, really, really need to be diversified and differentiated, I think, a bit more because having to read slides and watch a PowerPoint has just become so boring. It's quite exciting when you're a child. It's like, oh, my gosh, technology, like, this is amazing. But mm. you kind of get desensitised to it as, like, another PowerPoint presentation. Like, even when you have meetings, conferences, like, it's like, oh, a PowerPoint. It's like, oh, another PowerPoint. <laughs> I spend my life reading PowerPoints. Yeah. Um, so when people do things that are interactive, that are dynamic, for example, you know, on your reading list, put an audiobook in there. I don't have to read every single book from cover to cover yeah. to know what the topic is about. Or maybe put a podcast in okay. or put um, a blog in, something that's not a PowerPoint so or it's just a, a textbook. A, a range, I suppose. Having a range of yeah. things, definitely, that are not always written. Because sometimes I think if you do have a condition that makes reading quite daunting, even someone saying, here is a textbook in the library, go and take it out. I won't even look at how big the textbook is. I'll be like, I don't want to do that because mm. I just don't. <laughs> it's okay. just too overwhelming. Okay. Um, whereas if people, you know, recommended a few different things, it would be a lot easier to kind of maybe choose from a range of things. Okay. Yeah. If you were to give one or a few tips to students and staff uh, in terms of them being able to help support disabled students or okay. students with different disabilities as much as possible, uh, what would it be? I'm, I'm aware that's quite a broad question but what would you kind of want them to know I suppose um I think my key tip is always as much as you can try not to think from your own perspective which sounds really ironic because Mm. as a human you just kind of go through life 
doing what you know how to do, but it doesn't help other people. So, for example, considering that there might be people in the room who, you know, just can't tolerate loud noises or flashing lights or, you know, font that's too small or, you know, too tightly packed together. Mm. Um, I think just being considerate of those things as you're developing resources is very, very helpful. So not having slides that are completely text dense with no images, because mm. actually, normally I would focus on the image as opposed to the writing. If the image is not going to tell me what you're saying, then I'm probably not going to understand the writing. Mm. Um, so just being mindful of the fact that people are basically neurodiverse, I suppose, that's if the word. Um, and also proofreading, <laughs> getting yeah. other people to proofread your work to make yeah. sure that it's readable, not just to yourself. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, what you might have mentioned a few of these things already, but what one thing or number of things would you change or introduce to make the university or universities generally more accessible? I think the introduction of more visual and auditory methods um, of teaching and learning, I think is just the biggest one that is missing across education at every single level in every single institution. I mean, the idea that, you know, reading a textbook is the only way to learn and pass a test is such a horrible idea because for a lot of people it just means that they're not going to do well mm. um, and if you struggle to read from you know primary and secondary school you're going to be lost for the rest of your academic career or you know professional career as well so I think having a range of methods having more diverse methods having more videos having more audiobooks having more podcasts having more discussions and debates or mm -hmm. You know, things like that. I think that is something that's definitely missing specifically from higher education where I feel like it's very content based. Mm. So maybe the effort to engage is not as much. It's like we need to get through this content. Yeah. So, yeah, that's quite a big thing, I think. I suppose that has happened on, on news websites, hasn't it? Like you yeah. can listen to them instead exactly. of read it. So do you think something like that should be definitely. incorporated? I think yeah. it should be incorporated. I think there should be videos. I think there should be um, more kind of just talking through things like it doesn't have to be completely online based um but it would be nice to have you know a textbook that reads itself <laughs> yeah. i can listen to it while i'm driving or doing something else um and be able to have more kind of seminar style discussions about things that i may not understand okay um yeah so there's a chance there's a chance to say you don't understand something as opposed to maybe a lecture where yeah it's all going towards you exactly yeah. so a lecture is kind of like i'm being spoken at like being lectured outside of the university context is not a good thing if someone says i'm going to give you a lecture it's like oh god <laughs> i'd rather you didn't um, yeah so i think even in university it's it kind of just gives you that kind of dread it's like oh a lecture oh another lecture um i think conversations encouraging peer learning as well a lot of the things i've learned since i've been at brighton i've learned from other phd students it's like wow, I'm doing a PhD and I actually didn't know what this word meant. But just having that non-judgmental kind of peer learning environment where someone can actually just ask questions, mm. I think that's really, really useful. I learn really well that way personally. In my school, I suppose the setup that's kind of been orchestrated from the doctoral college and the supervisors in our school is that we're all together. So all the PhDs in our department have an open plan office. So people can just like shout questions over their computer and be like, oh, I've just seen this article. Like, what does it mean? And someone else will say, shout back um, a, a definition or an explanation. It's like having that open space to kind of be like, I'm going to pop my head above my computer and just ask somebody a question that mm. I don't know the answer to is so, so helpful. So helpful. But I'm aware that other PhDs and other students don't have that. And I think that's what's missing for a lot of students here. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that sounds like a good antidote to the potential isolation you might have yeah. doing a PhD so that helps with that definitely I don't think I've ever kind of felt like really lonely okay. since I started my PhD which is interesting because I expected to feel lonely because of what other people told me but it's like I came and snap bang I had a, a desk with my name on it that was in the middle of a room with you know 15 other PhDs um, and then we socialize we have lunch together and we kind of arrange meetings and peer learning groups reading groups so I think we've kind of developed that, but that's been facilitated by our supervisors and the school and the environment around us. They've encouraged us to do that. I see. OK. And you mentioned earlier that you had done a bit of teaching yourself in some schools in London. Yeah. Um, what about how does that tie in then with uh, ADHD and chronic fatigue syndrome? I mean, do you have to put certain mechanisms in place to, to help yourself there or have you found it's not quite as much of an issue in that context? Or I'm just wondering how that works with that. Um, I think... I think having ADHD is a good 
thing in the sense that I work really well with children, maybe because I'm just my mind's all over the place all the time and that's very childlike, but I don't know. Um, I think it has meant that my students engage really well with my materials because they're written for people like me, I suppose, mm. in the sense that there's not loads of text, there's loads of pictures, there's loads of emojis if you don't understand the text. That a confused emoji means, mm, you're going to have to think about this, actually. Um, so having things like that where they can kind of draw on pictures and symbols they're used to, mm -hmm. so things that they maybe see on social media and things like that, I think it's helped them to kind of recognise, OK, nerd emoji means I need to be serious and I need to actually read this properly. Um, so you use them consciously? Yeah, so I okay. use them consciously right. and they know, OK, like the writing hand emoji means we're going to have to do some work right. or the microphone emoji means I'm going to have to speak. So I think just using simple tools like that, it really does engage them because they know what's coming next. Mm. Um, and it helps them to kind of break down the lesson into chunks so they don't feel like it's just going to be, you're t I'm talking at them constantly, which I think for me personally, I don't work well that way. And I've noticed that a lot of my students are quite grateful for that because they also don't work well that way. Mm. Um, so I think just trying to bring a bit more of a change into the classroom context, I think they're really appreciative of it. And would you like to see more education around awareness of disabilities in general at universities? So whether that's implemented into course introductions mm. or something like that, is that something that you think would be a positive step? Yeah, definitely. And I think even the word disability, I feel like everyone just needs a bit more re-education about what the word disability means, because mm. I think it's very... Um, it's very focused on kind of like a specific look of a person, i.e. if they have a walking stick or if they have a cane or if they have a wheelchair, it's like this person is disabled. And, mm. you know, if they don't have any of that, then it's like you don't look disabled, but it's like, what does looking disabled mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I think just re-education for not just staff, but also students to be a bit more aware and sensitive of other students in the room, because mm. sometimes you can say something and be like, oh, Anyone who doesn't understand this is stupid. It's literally like, I've read this for the 50th time and I still don't understand it. And mm. you're indirecting me in the room. Um, so just helping people to be a bit more aware okay. and sensitive of certain things. Okay. Um, and to encourage peer learning. I know I keep saying that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so by, really by cool. peer learning, you just mean amongst yeah. fellow students. and yeah. yeah. To okay. encourage them to you know, set up study groups, to share notes. So one thing that I think I did in the secondary school was um, we had a Google Doc that everybody had access to and everybody put notes into and it just had loads and loads and loads and some of the things were repeated but it just meant that if you didn't catch something in a certain way someone else could break it down for you mm. um, and sometimes as a teacher or as a lecturer you kind of forget how your mind worked 10 20 30 years ago so the way you're delivering a certain message your students might not understand it so it's nice to be able to have peer learning because someone could explain something to you once and you'd get it and mm. someone else might explain it 50 times and you'll be like I still don't I don't follow. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. Um, as, and finally, I suppose, what uh, advice would you give to a prospective student who has no experience of higher education at all? And um, again, it's a broad church, but is coming into higher education with a disability or a condition. Um, what do you think you would say to that person? Um, I would say it's hard, but don't be fearful. Or don't be anxious to talk to people about it or to ask for help if you need it. Or to decline help if you don't need it. Because I think sometimes people just assume that if you have a certain condition, you're going to be a certain way. Right. And you're going to need certain things. When actually, that's not true. Um, so I think it works both ways, you know, of declining and, and requesting support. Okay. Um, and also educating people. Because sometimes, you know, people might be like, ADHD, what's that? But they won't say it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you might be the first person that they've met that is in university and has ADHD. I think since I've been here, I've kind of, I've, as I've said it, people are like, oh, me too. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> there's more of us. <laughs> so yeah. you don't feel as alone. But I think before, when I didn't feel as comfortable to kind of share that with people, I didn't meet anybody that had ADHD. Or maybe I did, but they didn't tell me. So... Um, yeah, I think just don't be fearful, you know, try and get as much support from different avenues as possible um, and just do what works well for you, I think, and share that if you found things that work. Great. Yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to add about anything we've discussed or more? Um, I think the one thing that I kind of try to focus my attention on is just not being boxed to do things a certain way. So knowing that my attention span is so short means that there will be days or weeks that I don't come into the office because I just can't work in that space in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think not feeling boxed to do what everybody else is doing. Everybody else comes in Monday to Friday, nine to five, and that works well for them, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah. So I think that was a learning curve for me where it was like, I thought there were certain things expected of me. And then I realized actually I could just remix this and kind of make it my own. Mm. So I think that's a very big tip for I think anybody at any level who has it. But that comes back to institutional as well, doesn't it? That they need to be flexible yeah. in their approach. That's another thing. I'm again quite fortunate because I can come in on Saturdays and Sundays. I can stay here until the library closes at night. Whereas for other people, it may be a bit more rigid and they mm. might not be able to come in at 9.30 because they've had a rough morning and they've not slept all night or... You know, they've been working since 5 a.m. because that was just when their brain decided that it wanted to write those PowerPoint slides. Um, so I think flexibility from institutions, yeah, that's a big one. My name is Mirika Flegg and I am a final year PhD student at the Centre of Resilience for Social Justice. Um, and I also do visiting lecture in the School of Health Sciences. Could you please describe your disability and give us some background about it? Sure. Um, well, actually, I'll ask you a question on this first. So if, um, if I was to tell you that I have multiple health conditions, what sort of reasonable adjustments would you put in place for me? Um, good question. <laughs> well, in adjustments in what sense? Well, this is the thing, you know, we ask at the application stage, you know, what kind of, um, you know, disabilities people have. And one of them is, is multiple health conditions which is something that a lot of us with disabilities will face. You know, often um, disabilities sort of go hand in hand. You have one, you kind of get another. Mm. Um, so, you know, by not asking that correct question, you know, you don't actually, you can't actually answer what sort of reasonable adjustments I might need. I so if you have a requirement to make anticipatory reasonable adjustments, mm. you can't do that with the information that you've got at the moment. So, you know, in order to, um, to answer that question of what people do need and be able to plan for them, you have to ask the right questions from the start. And some of the current research that we've had at the moment is suggesting that those reasonable adjustments aren't happening in a timely manner and that's leading to a lot of um, student dropouts as well. So by just ch changing that application process to say tick all that apply, then suddenly you've got a lot more information. So if I was to tell you, you know, I have um, physical um, challenges and sensory challenges, you'd have a much better understanding about what kind of um, supports that I might need. So you think that initial kind of questionnaire or survey is limited, too limited? It's definitely too limited. Um, and I think a lot of the research, what it says is that when you ask staff um, what kind of changes need to be made um, with disabilities, um, I'll, I'll put some references in the, in the transcript, um, it will say things like, oh, we need a lot more one-on-one -on -one time and all this sort of information to get that extra information that you need of how you're going to support students. But you can actually change that very simply. Mm. So if you were to change that on, uh, you know, the application form, then suddenly you can make a more equitable and fair interview process because, you you know, if someone has a physical disability, you might make, make sure that you organize the interview room in a place that's wheelchair accessible, etc., etc. So you can make a more equitable interview process, but you can also start to make those plans ahead of time before students come. So, you know, room bookings can be made around those things when you're booking rooms for everyone else rather than having to then do reasonable adjustments. So really, I think staff are making a lot more work for themselves than they need to, be, to, to make. And it's forcing students to come out with, um, you know, specific, this is my disability, it affects this, this, and this, and this, which we know at a, you know, wider level, there is quite a bit of stigma and there is quite a bit of challenges that people face as far as discrimination. You know, that's why we have these laws put in place because they're needed. So, um, you know, by changing tiny little practices, we can actually do a lot more to support students without actually costing any more as well. And you hope that your research will go some way towards achieving that, I suppose? I hope so, you know, and for me, it's not necessarily um, just about research. Like, I've definitely done research as far as supporting myself and doing small projects on this, but the most important thing to me is about talking about it and, um, you know, making changes now so that other students, other staff have an opportunity to be successful, not only in higher education, but be successful also in their careers we know that you know if you are have a disability you're very you're much less likely to be employed um, for various different reasons you know one of the things that brought me to higher education is um, you know with physical disabilities um, there's a lot of jobs I can't physically do um, so you know I was very inspired by some disabled leaders that were working in higher academia 
or higher education at the time, um, to say, you know, well, actually, if my brain's great, then it doesn't matter as much if my body's always useful. So there's an opportunity, which might be one of the reasons why we have more people with disabilities in higher education than we do in some other um, occupations. I was going to ask about that, actually. Um, what, when it comes to selecting a university to study or work at, um, how readily available is information about support for prospective students or, or employees with disabilities? Is it, is it easy to find that kind of information on you know, university websites, for instance? Or? I think to a certain extent it is quite easy to find that kind of information, um, but it doesn't necessarily do what it says it's going to do on the tin, you know? Mm. So you can, you can think that there are certain things that might happen, and also, um, as well, we have the interviews for, for most, most um, you know, jobs or anything that happen around the June sort of time period, May to sort of time period for any sort of scholarships or um, postgraduate studies or any of those kinds of um, education opportunities. That's when you hold the interviews. But generally changes at an institutional level, such as like room space, um, organizational working practices, those things tend to change around the start of the academic year. So the things that you think might be in place when you apply might be completely different by the time you start university. So, you know, there's there's got to be those sorts of communications, especially when you have had an interview and you have explained things and things might have changed since. So there's kind of a lag there in between the promise of, of action and action, I suppose. Exactly. And that comes down a lot to these things such as, you know, anticipatory reasonable adjustments. We know it's a it's a legal requirement to do, but if you're not asking the right questions, then you can't actually feasibly do it. Okay. Great. I mean, this is quite a broad question and feel free to answer as generally or specifically as you want, obviously. But um, what do you think are the biggest potential challenges facing people with disabilities in higher education? And obviously it's a, it's a broad church, as you've discussed already. It is a broad church. And I've talked about, you know, the application um, phase and the interview phase at this point. Um, but, you know, once you actually get to university, um, most uh, were the, you know, world leaders in higher, um, higher education is the world leaders in evidence-based science, right? Evidence-based practice, all these sorts of things. Except for the fact when you look at surveys that we're giving to students, um, such as um, NSS scores, or if we're looking at things like um, that we give to staff, such as Athena Swan surveys, etc., etc., they're not universally accessible. So they're not available in Braille, they're not available in print copies, you can't do them over the phone, you can't get actual assistance in order to do them. Mm -hmm. So we're actually excluding a large number of people with disabilities from being able to um, give information that would actually change practices to make things um, more helpful mm. for us. So I think the biggest challenge that students with disabilities have and staff with disabilities have is there's a, a limited lack of channels that we can communicate things when there are challenges and that we can give good practice recommendations without necessarily always having to come forward and saying, I've got a disability, this mm. is affecting me here, this might also affect other people could we make a change, where then people look at it as, oh, well, that's just something that you need, mm -hmm. where in reality, um, you know, it affects tons of people. Like in a higher education context, um, we know, and neuroscience and pretty much every discipline on the, the, the planet has told us, that in order to have proper learning, you need to have um, sensory information processing. Mm. You know, we're, we're in the business of learning sensory information processing. Now, that is actually one of the things that cross-cuts a number of disabilities. So if you were looking, I mean, I could give you a ridiculously long list from like mental health disorders to um, neurological conditions, um, all these different things um, sort of uh, cross-cut where sensory processing might be impacted. Um, so because of that, um, we're actually limiting a large number of students with disabilities from being able to contribute. Mm -hmm. And we're treating them all as different when actually within a learning environment, a lot of us have a lot of similarities. And you think that contributes towards the, the dropout rates that you were discussing earlier, that they, they don't feel communicated to or, or with, I suppose? They don't feel communicated to. Um, learning is not developed um, with them in mind because, I mean, I've been in higher education since 2012 and, um, you know, it's never been accessible for me mm. in all that time. And, you know, we know that the numbers of, in, of students and staff within higher education are growing, although, you know, recent reports have said we've lost 
a large number of them due to dropouts and um, retirements and um, organizational pressures and all those sorts of things as well. Um, but we, we, we could make a, a much simpler change by, by um, starting to adopt things like universal design principles. Okay. Can you touch on that a bit more? University design principles. Sorry, universal, universal design universal principles. Universal design what, what does principles. that entail? Well, actually, I would say that, you know, the University of Brighton within our, our strategic plan um, with equality and diversity is that we actually touch on universal design principles, um, but we only do that when in, in terms of assessment. So the concept of universal design is one thing. Um, it's kind of an overarching philosophy in the um, UK. You might consider an inclusive design. Um, uh, Europe, the idea was designed for all, and these ideas were all springing up. um, Universal design was more an American concept. So these were all springing up at the same time. Um, But what's made the term that's been used within the UN um, Charter for the Rights of People with Disabilities is universal design. Mm. And the UK actually hasn't ratified that. Now that creates um, exceptional challenges for any organizational institution because suddenly you're having to think about how do you get students and staff to your location all of these sorts of things where if universal design was ratified more fully things like access by transport would be the responsibility of public transport things like um, access as far as buildings would be the responsibility of architects so you know we are quite limited um, because we haven't ratified all aspects of that that convention and because there's discussions about um, pulling out of that convention and just keeping the aspects that we've ratified um, already. I think it's really important that all of us, you know, write our MPs um, and start advocating for um, not having that, uh, that UN Charter removed. You mentioned you've obviously been in higher, higher education since 2012. Um, have you seen any positive advances in that time? Um, I would say a little bit in the area of mental health and that I think culturally overall we're a little bit more aware of mental health challenges so I think maybe in that respect um, yes there have been some improvements um, but realistically I think it's actually gone downhill and I'll say that for, for me the um, thing that's inspired me the most has been you know um, senior academics who themselves have disabilities some have been open about it and some have not been publicly open about it but they will talk to students <laughs> they need to um, and those have been um, the greatest inspiration for me but because of changes with organizational pressures and um, redundancies and all these sorts of things that's meant that a lot of those staff members are now gone so that greatest source of inspiration mm-hmm. is now lacking in higher education and that's what motivates you to go yeah I can do this you know yeah. on those really bad days so you know I think that's gone downhill because we've been losing those really knowledgeable staff that not only have skills in higher education and research and you know teaching and learning and all these wonderful things, but they also have the understanding and the empathy and um, the problem-solving skills that are required to be a disabled person within mm. this kind of environment. We're talking about understanding, um, kind of moving down from a kind of structural and institutional level. Um, I wonder if you were to give one or a few tips to students and staff in order to to help them support disabled students as much as possible. What would they be, do you think? Ooh, good question. I think for students, um, my recommendation is be to find out as soon as possible what sort of documents that you have to provide to get going on all that sort of admin stuff because there is a large amount of admin. So try and do that before you start because otherwise, you know, it can be a bit a lot of stuff to do at once. Um, so from students, that's um, my primary recommendation and also speaking to other students and to staff um, that may themselves have disabilities and can help support you um, to navigate those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be my first recommendation. As far as staff, I think um, really it just needs to be about changing perception. I don't actually think that staff are the problem because I've you know there are the occasional bad apples that have you know, um, negative perceptions of disabled people, just as there are in the rest of the general population. Um, But primarily my experience of staff have been very understanding and been very accepting and want to make changes. They want to make their students, they want to help their students do well. But sometimes you're you're limited with that. Mm -hmm. Like I'll give you an example, like I do a lot of visiting lecturer work. I don't always get the information beforehand as to whether those students have in my classroom have specific disabilities 
Hmm. You know, I don't have access to all their files, etc., etc. I don't always have that information. So, you know, designing things from a universal design principles as far as doing my slides and things are very important to do that mm. in advance so that's something that staff can definitely do um, and that's difficult and that also comes down to an organizational thing as well because if you look at operating platforms that we use powerpoint you know um, mm. operating systems those aren't really designed with universal design principles in mind which you know we talk about the cost of disabilities that's a huge money-making income stream that we could do as higher education academies mm. and we could do easily because we actually have access to those participants. We're always talking about widening participation and how difficult it is to reach people with disabilities. We have students with disabilities, we have staff with disabilities within our four walls, you know, that we could actually conduct that kind of research where other organizations might be really challenged to do that. So we have an opportunity to really bring in a large number of income streams in order to support those mm. things. And that would support staff because, you know, if you're not having to think, okay, how do I design this template with the right font, with the right background, with the right color scheme, because it's already there, then, you know, mm. Bob's your uncle. So you easier. think, obviously it would have to be organizational, but you think it should be mandatory for lecturers, lecturers to know about the disabilities that the students in their classes have then? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that's absolutely mandatory because how can you support people without that? And you don't necessarily need... Sometimes you might need to know exactly which student has what disability, but if you know that you know there's someone in your class that has um, uh, um, challenges with hearing, then you'd make sure you face the front when you're speaking so that they can read lips. Yeah. You know, and these, these are things that are helpful for all students, not just students with disabilities. I also think it should be mandatory that lecture slides be up a week in advance so that people that do need to then adjust those slides so that they're accessible to them or use accessibility software can actually review the information before they come to class so they can participate fully. Okay. You mentioned support there um, between staff and students, between students and other students. Um, what support have you accessed at the university, if you have accessed any? And that might be something that's been set up by the university or something that's been set up amongst staff or amongst students. Well, unfortunately, um, I, I'm a British citizen, but um, I don't qualify for national supports. Um, which will be the same thing for a number of different individuals because they changed the policies in 2017 on student finance. So you need to be able to access student finance to be able to access um, disability supports. Right. And they've now changed that, that you need to live in the UK for 20 years beforehand if you um, immigrate before the age of eight, uh, um, after the age of 18, or seven years if you immigrate when you're a child. Um, so because they've changed those things, and I'm sure it has to do with the changes with the EU and, you know, the hostile environment for immigrations and all these sorts of things, but mm. it means that actually there's a number of people that can't access those national support systems. So while I've had access to, you know, limited amount of support that's offered in-house at the university, there's really not that much support that's accessible and um, the biggest help has actually come um, from my research centre because I needed access to a light laptop to do my um, research because mm. I was travelling for my research and under GDPR regulations you need access to, you need to use actual university um, equipment in order to do these sorts of things um, so they, they helped out as far as helping me to access a, a laptop but okay. without that I wouldn't, I wouldn't still be here. Okay, and you mentioned the centre there. Was there already work um, going on in that in that centre as to what you're doing now, or do you think you've kind of been the first person to explore what you are exploring in your in your line of research? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think in the UK we're a little bit behind, um, which is really unfortunate because you think you know I was talking to you about inclusive design principles and how in the UK originally those had to do with products and services and all these sorts of things where, you know, universal design principles in America were more about access to buildings. So mm -hmm. we had, we had, we have this rich history here about thinking a little bit outside the box as far as how we make things universally accessible to the widest number of people. Um, but we're just not really actually implementing that. So the, the countries that have um, ratified the UN Convention, you know, for example, uh, that aspect of the UN Convention, such as Canada or such as Spain, actually have considerable much 
um, much more research right. in those areas than we do within the UK. Has there been any explanation as to why that hasn't been ratified then? Um, no, I'm not quite sure if I'm honest. Um, I know that um, there was a huge investigation um, in 2017, I believe, um, uh, looking at disabilities within the UK and and it was decided that systematically there are challenges across the board. So it's not just a problem within higher education. Um, and I'm not sure exactly why that, why that is. You know, we know we have an aging population. We know that disabilities, you're you know, less likely to be born with a disability than you are to acquire one over time. So this is an issue that's important for all of us because with the you know, aging pension age and raising pension age and all these sorts of things, chances are you, all your colleagues, are going to be working at some point in their life with a disability. So you know, we really should be putting this at the forefront and I can't explain why we're not. Okay, and what about the matter of education and awareness then within universities? Well, I mean, I think things are changing a little bit. Um, we had a learning and teaching conference here um, last, last year and I presented at that, and they had a presenter that was talking about universal design principles. And most of the people in the room said, you know, what's universal design? And she had to do the big explanation for it. Now that's in her strategic plan, mm. you know, and I think the university has responded now by increasing um, inclusive design um, training to staff, because I know a number of colleagues that have recently gone on new courses. So I think they're making changes in that respect. But, you know, you can't put something in a, in a strategic plan without explaining to people what that is, you know. Um, it's, a, it's a shame that people don't necessarily know that. Maybe that's a cultural thing, who, who really knows. But, you know, mm. we need to provide training as well as provide these good ideas. And that's what I said before, you know, the information when you look online looks good, but it doesn't actually do what it says it's going to do on the tin because people actually haven't had that information trickle down. Mm. And how can we help that to trickle down more then, do you think? Definitely staff training, um, definitely advocating on a wider level as well, because as I said, you know, this, this, these responsibilities shouldn't necessarily fall just on, on staff, which, you know, research suggests that actually reasonable adjustments and responsibility to, to make them falls primarily on staff and students. We need to look at that, at how that can actually be done at an organizational level, such as changing these things, such as our application forms, so we can actually provide, a, you know, anticipatory reasonable adjustments, which are our legal duty to do. Um, you know, we have to change things such as um, offering NSS scores and, and or NSS surveys and all these things and make those accessible to people with disabilities so we can have evidence-informed practice. Mm. And I also think as far as supporting staff, we need to think of a um, developing a quality charter for um, staff with disabilities in higher education, um, similar as we have Athena Swan. And I know that there's discussions about maybe we just merge um, you know, uh, disability uh, equality matters into Athena Swan. Personally, I don't think that makes sense. Number one, we don't have the evidence to be able to say that that's okay. We need to go back and do research by talking with students with disabilities, by creating software and, and um, surveys that are accessible so that we can monitor them, ask their opinion, um, before we can even start to think of what's the first first step to do. Mm. Um, um, so, you know, I don't, and also, you know, these, this challenge with, with um, reasonable adjustments it only applies to people with disabilities. So we have different aspects under the law. So why put us under uh, a um, existing category that doesn't include those legal responsibilities? Mm. Okay. Um, I was going to say, what one thing would you change or introduce to make the university and universities generally more accessible? But I think you probably answered that. Well, I would say there's one very simple thing that okay. can be done, um, which is we have this great uh, scheme with the Brighton Bus Company called the Helping Hand Scheme. And you, you know, you write in, you get a little card and it says, hi, my name is Merica. Um, I need a seat, you know, or something along these lines, something that makes it easy for you to communicate very quickly to people 
that you might have an additional um, need. Now, there are um, different ways that we can go about that. You know, I know supermarkets, airports do things like sunflower lanyards, which you can um, hang around your neck. Um, that's great, but, you know, if someone's in a, if students are on placement, they're in a trust, or they're in an educational placement, you might need something that's a little bit uh, less obvious and something that you can just sort of hold up. That would also be really helpful if you're going to open lectures, be helpful if you're in the canteen, helpful when you're traveling, helpful if you go to other universities, because if you want to be successful as an academic, you need to have a global reach, you need to travel to other places, you need to present at other campuses. You're not always going to know what is accessible for you when you go to speak at a conference. Mm. You're just not going to know. You've never been there. So having something like that accepted across all universities would mean it's a lot easier for people to advance their careers because they can get around a little easier. You mentioned the learning and teaching conference. Was there a kind of main theme of your, of your talk there or were you just discussing um, the issues facing students with disabilities in general? Yeah, um, I did my um, learning and teaching um, postgraduate certificate um, last year and I did a small research project where I was looking at the actual online information about universities and sort of seeing what those opportunities are because, you know, as you said, you know, you look at that information before you choose which university that you're going to attend. Mm. And, you know, research tells us that that's actually pretty standard for most of us with disabilities. Um, so I looked at sort of what was there. And I was really surprised, you know, that there isn't an, a quality charter, that disability was quite low on the agenda. Um, and so I was talking about those different aspects of little things that we can do. And also, you know, how we can... Um, advance things more in a wider system level because it shouldn't be the responsibility of individual staff and it shouldn't be the responsibility of individual students. We should take this on as a broader, um, you know, higher education mission mm. and individually we should take this on as a, you know, concerned citizen mission because as I said, you know, chances are most of us are going to be working at some point in our lives with a disability. Mm. It just so happens that I did it a little bit younger than most people. You know, it's it's not it shouldn't be that big a deal. All of us are going to have to deal with it at some point. So let's figure out how we're going to do it. Do you think that's a bit of a mentality problem then in the general public that they think that maybe having a disability is kind of out there? It's other. It's not involving them. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. I think okay. a lot of people see it as a you know disabled people fight versus you know able persons. Mm. You know, control of budgets and <laughs> mm. yeah. managing these sorts of things, but really, it's it's something that affects all of us. Okay, and you you kind of touched on your anxieties, I suppose, about your next step. And do you think that that is a kind of widespread concern amongst people with disabilities that once you leave your course of study, whether that's to go into further academia or or another career, do you think that's quite a widespread anxiety about how disabilities are going to be catered for in different institutions moving forward? I suppose. Um, I don't know if it's a widespread thing, but I know certainly anyone who is influenced by research, as most of us who are researchers are, know that when you look at the statistics, our chances of employment are small, hmm. you know. Um, our chances of employment are small. Um, there are limited jobs that maybe we can do, which, as I said, is what brought me to higher education in the first place. You know, you have to be the best. There's um, this um, research that was done in Spain and one of the participants said, you know, you know, as disabled people, we have to achieve um, more or we have to do, do more to achieve half. You know, mm. we know we have to be the best when we go in an interview. There's there's and yes, there's there's practices that are supposedly there to prevent people from discriminating against applicants that have disabilities. But. We all know that those can be fudged to a certain extent. Um, you know, so you have to be the best. There has to be no other reason that they can deny you that, that role other than, you know, mm. you have to be able to be the best in that interview thing. So yeah. I think, you know, that, that drives me certainly to um, achieve, you know, a high level of postgraduate training. You know, I might not be able to um, exist in a higher education institute unless there are some serious changes that are made mm. um, but I will be able to get a job somewhere I might be paid less to do it and we know this we know you know research says us that there's a, there's a disability glass ceiling that's just as just as bad as the actual employment um, barriers so we know that these things are but you know we strive to be the best 
Mm. Is it difficult not to kind of internalise that pressure at times, though, that pressure to have to be the best, like you said? I suppose any kind of stress can be good or bad, mm. you know, same for everyone. You know, it can be good or bad, depends, depends what day you ask me, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, I was going to ask about your advice for a student with disabilities that was just about to start an undergraduate degree um, who hadn't had any previous experience of of higher education but you may feel like you've already answered that but um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say on that. Um, I suppose you uh, the one thing I want to say is you can do it you know you can do it like I'm about to finish my PhD like you know you can do it you can do it just you know it's going to be hard it's going to be stressful you might need to change some of your life around you might not be able to go out and do the university experience of going out with your friends and doing all those things the same way that other students might also have um, those opportunities to do if you're having to pace yourself and manage your energy levels um, but you can do it you can get this once it's done you can do all the other stuff that you want to do so just keep going Many thanks to Naomi, Esther and Mirika for their time and join us next Friday for another University of Brighton podcast. See you next time.